Welcome! You found the Out of the Ordinary podcast, where we believe that the very best stories grow out of the soil of ordinary life. I'm Christy Purifoy. And I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And a few of my favorite ordinary fall things are snuggly sweaters, crisp, cool evenings, and digging all my boots back out of the closet again. And a few of mine are apples from the local orchard, the cashmere sweater I found at a thrift store, and the first fire in our wood stove. We hope these conversations help you see the extra hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. Well, we talk a lot about place on this podcast, don't we, Lisa Joe? We talk about this place, especially where I live and where we would get together and record these podcasts here at Maplehurst. And uh, so I think most of our listeners know that I live in Pennsylvania here in the United States. And as many of our listeners might also know, if they um, have tuned in to any news, <laughs> any <laughs> journalism over the past few weeks, is that during the recent election here in the U.S., um, all eyes were on Pennsylvania, which I have to tell you, Pennsylvanians feel like all eyes should always be on us. <laughs> we are so proud of our state. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> we love Pennsylvania so much. So, of course, it feels it's only natural <laughs> that, that the world was captivated with us this week. But, of course, it was for very serious reasons um, as this contested election and, and feelings, you know, about politics running high and, and then the drama of a week of waiting and vote counting. And, um, and here, here I was, uh, you know, right here feeling, honestly, quite at the center of it. And I shared with you and I think a few other friends and family at the time that I really love, I really do, I mean this, I really love and am grateful to live in what is called, quote unquote, a battleground state, <laughs> and not only a battleground state, but a, a battleground county. I live in one of those counties that is um, near to Philadelphia, and, you know, the journalists were talking about on the news as, as votes were being counted. I live in a very divided place politically. Okay, I'm going to drop a footnote now. Okay. Because somebody is getting very nervous as they right. listen to this. And they're like, where are they going with this? Are my beloved podcast sisters about to take a political stance and try to force feed us their opinions? So if that is you, just exhale. Just take another sip of tea. It's okay. We're not going to do that. <laughs> We're not going to try to share any particular political party's point of view at all. That is not what's going to happen today. So we want you to hang with us, okay? Because I think Christy's reason for living in a battleground state, the reason she loves it so much is going to surprise you. <laughs> so there we go. Okay. Are we okay? Just make sure everybody's okay. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Mackey, who's one of uh -huh. the co-founders of the Bible Project, anytime he's teaching, he does that. As he's preaching, he'll be like in this very intense, like often weird part of scripture, like maybe it's in Leviticus, very odd. <laughs> and he'll have like given a teaching and then he'll go, okay, we okay? How are you doing? How, how y'all doing? You doing okay? Checking doing in. Okay? I like so that. We're just going to keep checking in on you throughout this conversation to make sure you're doing okay. All right. So that was my footnote. I appreciate that, Lisa Joe. I love living in a battleground place, a divided place, because it makes it pretty much impossible, not impossible, 
almost impossible. It makes it very difficult for me to hate or demonize or even frankly dislike people who hold political views that are different from mine because they are actually my neighbor. It's not metaphorical. It's not metaphorical. They are my actual neighbor here in this place. We live um, elbow to elbow. We live um, in a community where we know that pretty much half of us think one way on on, um, politics and half of us think another. And we go to church together and we work together and uh, we're in our children, you know, in our local schools together. And um, I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, because it means I have ample opportunity to have um, conversations with people who think differently than me. And not only that, Lisa Joe, but just to walk alongside of people who think differently than me. And so today, I would love it if you and I could have a conversation about having conversations. Because I recognize that as much as I am grateful for the experience I've had these eight years in Pennsylvania um, of living in a place that that isn't um, homogenous, you know, when it comes to its politics, as much as I'm grateful for that, I also know that it can be very uncomfortable. It can be um, painful, honestly. It can be really hard. And I imagine that... Um, like me, many of our listeners may be struggling with that right now, maybe trying to discern, do I have this hard conversation? Do I push with this person or do I drop it? Or do I continue reaching out over here? Or what do I do with these feelings of of shock or horror that someone thinks differently than I do about the election or COVID or, you know, any... It, anything else? Um, what do I do with these feelings? Because these feelings are strong. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think let's have a conversation about how to have a conversation. Um, because I really do believe that we need to keep trying to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And here in Pennsylvania, it's just a given. Unless unless I want to stop talking to half the people <laughs> you know, I encounter day to day, this is something that I need to to get good at and to get co- more comfortable with. And um, and so I'm grateful that I have been challenged in that way. I will share also, Lisa Joe. you know, we often re- return in this podcast to stories of our childhood and our growing up. We often look back in order to kind of have those new eyes to see our day to day. And another part of my story that I have shared in the podcast is that I have lived in so many different places. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas with roots um, in, in the country. Um, my father was raised on a farm, and we returned every weekend to to that rural place and to my grandmother's farm. I lived in a small Texas town. Um, but then since then, I have lived in so many different places, suburban places, um, and also 10 years in the city. So 10 years on the south side of Chicago. And one thing that, again, for our listeners who may have been watching the news about the election this week, um, we know just from looking at electoral maps and maps showing, you know, how people voted, is that we are a country um, where our divisions are often visible in geography. So it seems that city people tend, not going to say everyone, of course, that's not true, but tend to vote one way. Um, People living in the countryside tend to vote another. Um, Suburbs, there might be some back and forth. Um, But our divisions aren't just divisions of 
of ideas or politics, but they're divisions around proximity. When we live in different places, um, it seems that somehow that shapes our, our approach to the world. And so I'm grateful as well that I have lived in these different places and that when I think about city people, when I think about country people, I'm seeing faces of people I love. I'm seeing actually the people I love the most, my dear, dear friends in Chicago and my dear, dear family around the country. So, you know, that's another part of my story, I think, that I'm, I'm going to bring to this conversation mm. about conversation. <laughs> and I think for our international listeners, because we know it's not just U.S. folks that sit here at the table with us having a conversation, I'm sure you too can relate to heightened conversations these days, because I know the entire world is trying still to figure out how is the best way to deal with, to respond to the COVID-19 situation. And just from looking at the news, we know that not everybody agrees. Countries don't agree. Peoples within countries don't agree. The temperature is rising, literally and metaphorically. There's just this real sense of extreme viewpoints, right? And folks are struggling to find common ground when they have these conversations. So whether it's in the U.S. about politics or in the U.S. about COVID or in overseas, about COVID, we just know that it can be challenging to figure out how to have meaningful conversations mm -hmm. with people who disagree with us. And I like that you pointed out, Christy, before we got on this call, that people might think you and I agree on everything, that, oh, we've been friends for so long, they must just agree on everything. And we don't. <laughs> that would we be don't. a misnomer to think. There's That's true. Over the years, we've had pretty intense conversations. And what's interesting about the two of us, too, is if you just look at our Enneagram, types, different Enneagrams respond to intense conversation differently. <laughs> so I remember, Christy, I hope it's okay, I'm going to tell the story. I remember sure, sitting sure. with you in the parlor by the fire. You had, of course, made an amazing charcuterie board. I remember there were dried peaches on it. Ooh, so good. And olives. And we were having a conversation in which it became apparent that we viewed things differently and it became more and more intense and I felt like my face flushing and it wasn't just from the fire. And I eventually, like, as you were becoming very passionate in what you were sharing, I feel like I did the equivalent of like putting my hands up and surrendering. And I said, wait, I feel like you're getting really mad at me. Like you're oh. angry with me. And then you <laughs> said, wait, what? No, no, we're, this is great. This is what friendship is. We're having a deep conversation where we disagree. And I was like, wait, but as a two, I feel like you're mad and I need to apologize. And you said, no, but as a four, authentic conversation, even when we disagree, yeah. is like the deepest level of like connection yeah. and trust and love. So I've often thought about that when I'm in the middle of conversations with people that, you know, not only where we live, not depending on the country and then within the U.S. if we're in cities or if we're in rural, but then just who we are, like how we've been shaped, what our families were like. Did you come yeah. from a family that loves to hash it all out or are you from a family that tends to prefer to just wipe it neatly under the rug? My mom's family was always a bit like that and my dad's family were more of the loud hash it out people. <laughs> and then just you personally are going to have your own compass for what feels to you like attack or conflict versus connection. And so we have, man, all of that is at play these days, just multiplied, right, on across all levels. And so when we thought about our conversation today, it just seemed that it would be, in fact, in Christy's words, inauthentic, not to at least address this <laughs> 
elephant in the room. Elephant in the room. <laughs> where everybody is like trying to have conversations and not quite sure how to do it. Some days we do it better than others. I confess some days we feel angry and hurt and sad. Some days we feel empathetic and understanding. But we love conversations so much and we love people. And we think it's worth actually unpacking a little bit here about what's playing out and how can we do it better? So we are not experts and we don't have the answer. We're just going to nope. tell you that. <laughs> We're just like, how can we do it a little better? Is there a way to do that? You know, one thing I've been thinking about lately, Lisa Joe, because it's true, that, you know, as an Enneagram 4, I'm super comfortable with um, everyone's feelings, even if they're negative. So I saw a funny, I think it was a little funny little meme about the Enneagram and social media in a time of, you know, politics. And I don't remember what it said about the other numbers, but I remember for the four, which is um, my number, it said, uh, the four is is just really glad that finally everyone is being honest about how they feel <laughs> on social media. <laughs> so there is, I do feel like if I pull up Facebook or Instagram, you know, I do have that sense of like, oh, yay, I'm finally seeing how people really feel. So... But I know that because I'm comfortable with emotion, even if it's negative, I can I can push hard in conversations when I have the wrong idea of what conversation is for, what it's about. So, for instance, um, I when I think that conversation is a is is about convincing someone that I'm right, when I when I see it as debate, when I see it as a chance for me to to prove my view and prove myself, which is I'm going to be honest often how I approach it, (laughs) unfortunately, but that is often how I approach it. Instead, this is what I've been thinking about this week. What if I thought of conversation as I, as I believe I see it here on the podcast. So when, when we sit down to record these podcasts, these conversations, these storytelling podcasts, I never think of it as, okay, here I am sitting down to make sure that now Lisa Joe agrees with me on everything. And now I'm, I'm about to debate Lisa Joe on things. I never feel that way. What I think is that when we sit down and we tell our stories, whether we're agreeing or disagreeing, whether we're kind of moving together or pulling apart, you know, in in different directions, what I feel is that together we are creating something. We're making something together. We are making something almost like a work of art that I cannot make on my own. That this is the wild, wonderful thing about conversation is that we cannot actually have a conversation only with ourselves. It's what we have with other people. And so you and I, when we sit down to record and have these conversations, we're creating something together. And it's not about agree, disagree. It's not about debate. It's not about um, that really at all. It's about creating this thing, almost like creating a story, creating a book, creating a painting. We create these conversations together. So what if I have an opportunity now in a time and a place that feels, frankly, really hard and barren. The landscape of conversation, the landscape of of so many of our relationships right now, whether they're face-to-face in our communities or on social media, feels like hard-packed soil. Like, wow, can anything good grow here? And what if I, I said, can a, can a beautiful, something beautiful grow here? And maybe it's just a beautiful conversation. That to me is a is a totally different approach than thinking, oh my goodness, can I get this person with this crazy idea to agree with me? Because they need to agree with me. <laughs> right. And I, I can hear somebody out there thinking the equivalent of a comment somebody left for me this week. Because I had put together an inst- uh, Instagram post that sort of shared along the lines of what you're saying um, and how 
is there, can we get to a place where, and I gave this example, I said, what's given me hope post-election is that my friendships have held, the friendships with people who I know believe differently than me, they have held. And that is so important to me. And I described how on Sunday, um, Zoe was carving pumpkins, which I know is like we're missed the season, but we're still doing it because we <laughs> like the seeds. And I remember telling her, be careful, that knife looks really slippery because it's like covered with all the seeds and the guts of the pumpkin. I warned her many times. And then I was like, stop helicopter parenting. And then she cut her thumb open. Okay. And it was like a sort of a knife that was curved. And so she carved like a perfect moon, <laughs> perfect crescent moon into her thumb. So much blood. It was really gross. And we all gathered around her, of course, and one person's handing over the gauze and the water and the compress, and we've now got her arm wrapped, and we've got her hand up on the end of the sofa, and we're wrapping her in blankets, and we just, we held her, like not literally with our arms, but we held a space for her, we held her pain, we held her fear, we held it. And I talked about that on this Instagram post, you know, maybe that's what we can do post-election. We don't have to agree, but maybe we could still hold each other. And then somebody else left a comment and said, yes, but when somebody has hurt me actively, like where there's been some toxicity that has come at me, I don't want to hold that person. And I don't think I should have to hold that person, which I get because that is always the pushback, right? Oh, don't tell me you're kumbaya, Christy. We're going to grow something beautiful out of hard soil. These are there are people out there who are mean and they've hurt me and I shouldn't be required to hold them, which really got me thinking. I sat with that for a while, right? Because we've all seen it. Like we've seen the comments and the interactions that are anything but beautiful. And I still wondered this, okay, if we can't hold the people, can we still though hold space for each other? By which I mean, I don't have to come all the way over to you. I don't have to embrace your viewpoint. But can I at least acknowledge that you, as a human being created in the image of God, deserve to have a space held for you here in the conversation, in this place of humanity? Or am I actually saying, no, I don't have to do that. I don't even have to hold space for another human being. I, I erase them where they were. They are no longer there. I don't have to hold space for them. That starts to feel deeply insidious to me as a believer and a conversationalist. Yeah, I'll be honest, Lisa Joe. Um, this week I had some comments as well, and and one of them has stuck with me because it it was in response to um, something I had shared. Where again, I w- I was trying to express that, like, hey, here's the ground I'm standing on. And I see you standing on ground over here. And I hope that we can listen to each other and figure out how to love each other. And I had at least one response that essentially said, oh, you're on that ground. So I cannot listen to you anymore. And goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, that's their right. But it did feel a bit like a door slamming and like I had tried to open a door and said, hey, I see you there. Um, I'd love to talk if you want. And it would have been okay to say, you know what, this, wow, mm, this is painful. I don't want to talk. Mm. I, I, hope, I hope that that will always be okay with me to say, okay, that's all right. We'll just stand here. <laughs> yeah. 
we'll just stand. Um, you can stand there and I'll stand here and, and we'll stay. And I won't run away, but here we are. But instead, it was the if what felt like a door slam. And almost, I think I felt some, I'll, you know, I'll just say, I, I thought I felt some hatred um, for who they thought I was or thought I rep- what they thought I represented. And that feels more like not only will I, I don't want to talk to you, which would be okay, but um, now you are dead to me. Mm. That's what it felt like. And it, I guess, yeah, maybe there, what I hope is that there can be a space where we can still be in proximity, where we can still be near enough <laughs> so that if my neighbor, who maybe I can't really have a conversation with, maybe I can't, but can I stay near enough so that if they need help or if I need help? Mm. If you need toilet paper in a pandemic. If I need toilet paper, I know. Yes. I know we shared, I think we shared on we a did. previous we shared podcast. We about my neighbor who totally rescued us um, during the early days of the pandemic when seriously, I could not find toilet paper anywhere, right? I want to be near enough to these neighbors, to all my neighbors, so that if if my family needs toilet paper, someone can hear my cry for help. And I want to be near enough that I can hear their cry for help. Or even just their their hello, you know? Because, um, yeah, holding space, holding a conversation it doesn't always involve words, right? Like I think yeah. so that's the other thing. So I've heard a lot of, okay, but if you're in friendships with people, relationships with people you disagree with and you're not talking about it, there's kind of like a silent agreement not to unpack all the difficult things, that somehow that's a cop-out. And I just straight up disagree with that because <laughs> I think there are so many ways we have conversations with people without saying words, right? Here, do you need toilet paper? Can I give your kid ride home? You know, can you watch my kid? Uh, yeah. I feel really sick. Can I? And then somebody says, can I drop food off at your house? Like, these are all ways of holding space, of holding people, even people that we might know we disagree fundamentally on certain core issues. But does that mean that that person I'm not going to show up for? And it got me thinking because part of what I'd written in my Instagram post originally is that at church this past week, I loved so much the teaching that they gave that kind of inverted something we've grown up with our whole lives. So we are familiar, if you're a believer, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan and Jesus talks about how you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we've heard it too often that it's lost some of its weight. And I love this inversion, this idea of can you love yourself as you love your neighbor? Which means like, can you love yourself as your neighbor? Like, what if the only love, empathy, kindness, casseroles dropped off on your doorstep, <laughs> would you would only get what you had given to somebody else. So what you sowed would be what was harvested in your own life. What if that was it? So whatever you put out there, that is what returns to you. Like that's scary, I feel like, for a mm-hmm, lot of us mm-hmm. these days who feel angry or frustrated and might have regretted that Instagram or Facebook post we put up. But that was so challenging to me to think again about, okay, what if that is my real responsibility? How I'm going to love the people around me? And it is a luxury and a convenience, I think, to slam a door on a conversation and especially on a person and say the equivalent of nothing you say now has any value to me when I have learned that we disagree on some of these issues. And I know that there are people listening who feel really uncomfortable with what we're saying because it's much easier 
so much easier to just surround ourselves with people who agree, especially if we feel like we're justified or righteous in our viewpoints. That's super dangerous, right? As believers, when each side believes that they are righteous, gosh, where does that leave us? And it's so tempting then to just start erasing people. That's the part that feels scary to us, and it's why we want to remind ourselves and our listeners that conversation requires two people like you both have to speak to call it a conversation in which in which case i think christy if you are interacting whether it's with an account or a person Mm -hmm. in real life Mm -hmm. who's never willing to hear your side right you Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. get a voice you don't get a chance to Mm -hmm. speak whether they're just Mm -hmm. spamming out memes about a certain party or anger or vitriol whether it's on a website or facebook or on a podcast then I think we've entered the land where we're no longer having a conversation. And it makes sense to me as the person trying to engage that conversation to say, okay, I, I think I'm going to stop trying for a while now because clearly you you don't have room for my voice. That's different to me than somebody who says something and you your reaction is, whoa, that was shocking and I didn't like it and it made me feel uncomfortable and I sure wish you didn't think that way. Yeah. And then follows up with, can I share my side? And then the original person says, oh, you don't agree with me? Oh, weird, strange. Uh, you, you might be wrong, but let's, let's hear your side. Yeah. Right? Then you have conversation again. And that allows us to keep holding each other. And maybe you have that conversation with your words and you realize you don't agree. And guess what? You then keep having your conversation with your actions. You still go to church together and your kids have play dates and you hang out. You go home to your Thanksgiving, even though you know you don't agree with those people around the table. But man, that's the kind of conversation I think that's a life, right? It's a lifestyle and choice, and it's a discipline. Like, let's be real here. It's a discipline because guess what? Like, that's what love is. Like, it is a discipline if it's anything else. So I think something that makes conversation challenging for me, Lisa Joe, or makes it, I just feel my in- inadequacy. I feel like I don't do it well. And that's because... The things I care about, I really care about. So if I have an opinion about something, if I have, whether it's a political view or religious or, you know, whatever, or, you know, I I mean, I have strong feelings about food (laughs) and books and everything, right? I have strong, strong thoughts and feelings. Um, And these things really matter to me. That makes conversation challenging because I look at the other person and I love them. I want to talk to them. I want to listen to them. But then I look back, my eyes go back to this problem, this issue, this thing that means so much to me. And then now I feel like I'm balancing the two. Like, okay, I want to be nice to this person. I don't want to hurt them. I want to do the right thing. But oh my goodness, look at this problem that needs fixing. Look at this problem that needs solving. So I heard a good... um, a talk recently from um, a, a writer and, and a counselor we both know, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Remind me, Lisa Joe, what are the names of his books? I think I know you're familiar with them. He wrote The Soul of Shame is probably the one he's the most yes. fam- uh, famous for. And then I think the other one is called The Anatomy of the Soul. So I heard him speak recently, not in person, <laughs> you know, online as we, we do. It was a great webinar. And um, he was talking about how we, we can be like the disciples on Good Friday where we look around and what we see is just like big problems, (laughs) right? Here is our Lord who was going to save us, and He's hanging on a cross. Uh, This is bad. This is bad. And this is all we see. We just see Good Friday. And He said, that's often 
the place where we stand when we look at the world's problems and the things we care about. We're standing there on Good Friday saying, oh my goodness, like this is so bad. This is a problem. Do you see this problem? And he said, and of course, I'm putting this in my own words, but how, what I remember him communicating was this idea as, as Christians, we need to stand on Resurrection Sunday. We need to stand on Easter Sunday and then look back at Good Friday and see it through that lens, see it from that perspective. So that has helped me enormously because now when I'm thinking about these problems, problems of justice and problems in the world I want to see solved and, and, and things that really, um, you know, fill me with like, you know, indignation and like, oh my goodness, people, let's fix this, you know, the things that can really rile me up. Now, when I think about those, I try to stand on Resurrection Sunday. I try to stand in that place where all has been made new and been redeemed and been restored, which is the end of the story that I absolutely do believe in. So when I stand there and then I look back at the problems, they're still there. Good Friday, you know, is still um, very dark, very terrible. I still see the brokenness. I still see the awfulness. I still see the problems that need fixing. But now I see them from a place of hope, mm. a place of um, trust, and a place that allows, that kind of frees me from the immediate burden of the problem enough to get creative, to say, ooh, okay, so there's an opportunity here. <laughs> you know, how can, I, how can I think creatively about approaching this problem I see? How can I team up with somebody? How can I um, move closer to, to my neighbor and even to those people I see as enemies to, to address this with hope and with love? Um, because I'm standing on Easter Sunday, right? So just that visual image of where am I standing when I'm trying to have a conversation with someone? Where am I standing? What am I rooting myself in when I consider the problems in the world that I do care deeply about? Where am I standing when I think about COVID? Where am I standing when I think about the next president? Am I standing in a really gloomy, dark Good Friday place where it feels like, you know, I don't even know what's going to happen next and I'm, I'm just full of grief and horror? Or am I standing on Easter Sunday where I know that all will be made right? Mm. It, yeah, it's helping me. It's helping me a lot. That's beautiful because I think that is one of the things we all are struggling with, let's be honest, because it's not just your eyesight, like your perspective of where you're standing, but it's how you feel. Like it's the emotions yeah. you have yes. on that spot, yes. right? Yes. Like, so the <laughs> disciples felt angry, betrayed, devastated, hopeless. I mean, those are a lot of, I'm sure if you're listening, right, you can relate to these words right now. And on Resurrection Sunday, there was awe and amazement and victory and joy and freedom. But what's tricky is we are also living in a world where, sadly, the things that get a lot of attention do tend to be the ones rooted in the emotions that are angry and scary. And there tends to be this cycle that feeds those emotions. And as anyone knows who has started the day by losing their temper with their children, Christine, maybe you can't relate to this, but I, <laughs> however, this is my legacy, okay? When I start the day with anger, everything snowballs the rest of the day. Like every other small transgression my child does annoys the heck out of me. Every other time somebody cuts me off in traffic, I am more angry because they did that thing. <laughs> anger feeds on anger. And it's the true, the same is true of love, right? And compassion and empathy. When I start the day 
and I give grace to a child, then it is reciprocated to me and they tend to give grace back. And there's more cooperativeness when I share love, compassion, and empathy when I choose not to start the day with criticism. And I've had to like actively change my patterns during this pandemic, not to start the day criticizing my children, but to start the day believing the best and encouraging and championing them. It has had a radical and life-giving effect in our home. But man, the same is true for grownups. And one of the things that that's been hard when we talk about conversation is I do feel like I started to feel a tickle in the back of my mind. And I was like, I feel like I've seen this before. Like I had world deja vu, you know, as we all get (laughs) angrier and angrier at our TVs. And I listen, I'm this, I'm not casting shade on anyone here or on any channel. This applies across the board. Okay. Whatever news show you are watching, it is the same for all of us. We are all having those days where we feel the growing anxiety or rage or trauma as we're watching the news. And I thought to myself, where have I, where have I seen this before? Like, where have I experienced this before? And of course there's a book. Of course there is. So (laughs) I went back to like, I mean, my mom was still alive. So I feel like it was my sophomore year of high school. Required reading for English class was the book 1984 by George Orwell. Oh, yes, yes. And I know people reference this book all the time, right? At different points in history, it, it cycles back in. And I know some people have used it to make fun of certain political parties or leaders. I'm not even trying to do that either. What was familiar is that the book actually has this weird element where in this sort of... um apocalyptic society that they live in, they are required daily to experience what they call the daily two minutes of hate. (laughs) I'm laughing, but not. It's as terrible as it sounds. Yes. And when I thought about it, I I was like, I got to go find that passage. Like, what are they talking about? Because I felt like there was something growing in me as much as I want to hold space. If I consume too much outrage, it is like an actual poison, right? It gets into your bloodstream and it then becomes, it produces symptoms in your own self of frustration and inability to hold space and refusal to have conversation with people. So I'm going to read a quote, you guys, the two minutes of hate, because I just want to give us a concrete image of what we want to avoid. Please let us not become this. So this is from 1984. And this is what it says. Oh, and let me give a little context. So it's it's actually plays on a television. It's two minutes every day. There's a show programmed to touch on all kinds of like deeply emotional things that will elicit a hate reaction <laughs> from the audience. I mean, it's basically exactly how it sounds. So he says, the horrible thing about the two minutes hate was that one was obliged to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet, the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blow lamp. So, there's a reason this novel has endured for such a long time. But when you read it, you realize the power of hatred, right? Like completely channeling into all of our basest emotions and then directing that however we want. 
And as you and I know, there's an author of darkness and he likes hate. He doesn't care which political party it's coming from. He doesn't care. He just wants us to hate each other. And the reason he wants us to hate each other is that Christ has put his very image on us. We are the image of Christ, the firstborn in Christ. He wants us to erase one another because guess what? He doesn't care about you as a person. He doesn't care about Christy or me. He cares about defacing the image of Christ. That is what he wants. And so he will do it with that petty annoyance that you feel towards somebody who crunches popcorn or chips at the next table in Panera. You just want to punch them in the face. And he will, or and he's just as satisfied as you watching whatever channel you happen to watch and feeling that rage swell up in you that makes you unable to stay in the room with someone who disagrees with you. And man, that may may that not be said of us. And I thought, you know, what is the opposite of two minutes of hate? Like, uh-huh. could we get like two minutes of empathy every day? Like, and not even love. Like, I think empathy would even be more powerful. Like, would we be able to step in somebody else's shoes for two minutes every day? How radically it would give us a superpower of actually loving our neighbor as ourselves, especially the ones we disagree with. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think there's, I don't know if there's a market for it, Lisa Joe, but I would, wa- <laughs> two minutes I, of empathy. You know, I would watch that show. <laughs> I'd take two minutes of that. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, unfortunately, we know, you know, hate, hate sells and maybe because it feels good at first. Yeah. It, it makes us feel, it makes me feel, let me just be personal and honest here. Let me say it in those words. It makes me feel a little stronger, a little bigger, a little more solid on my feet, a little more worthwhile um, because I'm focused elsewhere. I'm not looking at myself. I'm not even looking at Christ, but it's deceptive. And you're right. It's a poison that once we let it in, it does its work. And so, it feels good for a while. Mm -hmm. And then it, gosh, it makes us so sick. makes us so sick. So, yeah, give me two two minutes of empathy. I know because I come back to, you know, right in the very beginning, like as it says in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created. Like He's a God who creates, not a God who tears down. And I love that He says that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And, And I really believe in this context, He's talking about like humanity. It's not good for humanity to be alone. And we are in danger of building tiny little cells that we inhabit that are just full of our righteous indignation and the people who think exactly like us. And so, may we embrace the battleground, I guess, the battleground states. May we say, like, I currently, and we all do, we live in a space where we are going to, every day, interact with people who do not think like us. And May we be less afraid of that. I guess I'm not even going to say embrace it, love it, like go and have long conversations. I'm going to say let us be less afraid of it. Those people are not the enemy. They're mm-hmm. they're not. And I think any narrative in which we start to believe we are enemies, that has to be from the enemy, the enemy. And you know, I was doing research recently and was studying how we call Satan Satan, right? But like we call it to him like it's his name. Like, mm-hmm. he's Satan Smith, you know, like it's his <laughs> right. first name, but it isn't. Like, it actually, the Hebrew word is, if you were saying it correctly, you would you would say the Satan, and mm-hmm. actually that's mm-hmm. the pronunciation too. And it just means the deceiver, the accuser, you know, the, the one who wants nothing. 
And that is what he wants. He wants divisiveness. He wants us alone. He wants us afraid. He wants us not believing the best. He wants us not holding space. He wants us erasing the image of Christ and canceling it in other people. This is what he wants. This is his native language. And conversation, you know, Christ is called the Word in the book of John. The Word, like conversation is by its very nature a sacred thing that God invites us into. And so our encouragement today, really not just to you guys listening, but to ourselves more than anybody else, is to keep having conversations, keep saying the words, the good words, the words that are full of all the best assumptions about the people we're talking to, being willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and hold space for them because it's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us not to have all of those other voices. Imagine if we just started to pick off one by one the people we disagreed with, how small our world would shrink down to and how desperately we need to be informed by the thoughts of others who are willing to hold space for us too. Yeah, I think that's it. Stepping into our battleground spaces, but not to do battle, but to create, to cultivate, to write, to draw, to paint, to build, to repair, to heal. There's so much work to be done. And I think the battlegrounds are great places, fruitful places to do that. If we lay down our swords and we pick up these other instruments of creativity and peace. Mm, To peace. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.